This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. But maybe that's where you're listening to the podcast, because you can get all of the Times' uh, podcasts on the Times Radio app. Right, coming up on today's episode, That's Life. That's what all the people say. Uh, we are taking a look at 50 years of VAT and why, basically since its introduction, it's caused headaches for politicians. Why has it been so taxing from pasties to caravans, tampons to energy bills? Uh, we'll bring you the potted history of VAT and some of the highs and lows and whether or not actually we need it at all. Uh, so that's coming up in just a moment. Uh, first, though, let's kick off with the columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, and we say a very good morning to Mavi Rana. Morning, Mavi. Hello. Nice to have you with us. And this week's Matthew is Matthew Dathan. <laughs> Only my mum calls me Matthew these days. But for the purpose of the feature, you are Matthew Dathan. <laughs> Matthew Jolly, hello. Thanks very much for that. Home Affairs editor, how are you? Knackered. Good. Well, try and keep the energy up. <laughs> if you could just keep the energy up for the next 20 minutes, that'd be great. That'd be really good. Uh, let's talk about food. It's one of my favourite things. Uh, an investigation by Farmers Weekly has found that tens of thousands of tonnes of pork were being fraudulently passed off as British. And it was for- foreign meat coming over here, <laughs> pretending to be British, and it's being sold in supermarkets. One unnamed firm was found to be washing ham uh, that were visibly... Uh, washing ham that was visibly off and mixing rotting meat with fresh meat. And sending it off for further processing. Well, Farmers Weekly's deputy editor, Abby Kay, spoke to the Times Radio. I spoke to a number of former employees at this processor, which unfortunately we can't name for legal reasons, and found out a whole bunch of things that were just completely shocking to me. This particular processor was passing off huge amounts of pork as British when it was actually coming in from the rest of the world. And the way that they would do that is to buy in a small amount of British produce, and then they would use the traceability information from that produce for all of the products that they made in that week. Now, Matt, I think you and I are both veterans of the horse meat scandal, one of the great British political scandals, where it turned out that what you were eating in your burgers and your lasagna might not have been beef and it was horse after all. That was a long time ago now, though. You'd have thought they might have sorted this out. 
You'd have thought so, yeah. And at the time, you think uh, on the face of it, you don't really, really care as long as it tastes good. But actually, there's a, a very serious um, th- you know, issue here that uh, I think it stretches back to more than 20 years. They've basically been committing fraud by uh, mislabeling their products and, uh, and selling a lot of products to um, you know, mainstream uh, supermarkets, so Tesco, M&S, Asda, as well as other uh, chains, um, basically foreign, uh, foreign food labelled as British. Um, all the more reason to go to Greg's, I think. <laughs> what, is that, what, is it all British there? Yeah, definitely. And it says it is as well. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, in the pocket of big pasty. Um, uh, if I've just looked it up, ten, we've missed the anniversary. The middle of February 2013, it's 10 years ago, the, the, uh, <laughs> the horse meat scandal. We can, I'm sure one, we can find a pasty. one I always celebrate, <laughs> Yeah, by eating a horse. <laughs> Um, a bit, uh, or feeling uh, as hungry as one, I'm not sure. Um, it's one thing, arguably, British, you know, saying something's British when it's not, but but washing old rotting meat and then mixing it up with some other stuff, there's clearly a massive health implication of that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is basically, it kind of shows the importance of standards. And the moment you start to let go of some, it turns out that, you know, others slip too. I mean, it, uh, the scandal about the idea that they were mixing in rotting meat with uh, with sort of fresh meat and, and processing it all so that nobody they were selling it to would know is horrendous. And, you know, some of the accounts from the whistleblowers who were there are horrifying. They were saying things like, you know, I, I, if you complained, you'd be bullied. And, um, and they would, you know, one of them sort of said, I stood there every day thinking, we're going to kill someone. We're going to kill someone. You think, God, that's terrifying. You know, they were falsifying um, sampling documents around... Uh, different types of bacteria like E. coli. And, you know, you can see how this is incredibly dangerous. And even the bit about, you know, I know it sounds like we're just sort of, we're being, you know, we all care very much about the provenance of our meat. And, you know, is is this just us taking this all a bit too seriously? So what if they've mislabeled meat that's come from outside? But it's actually, again, it goes back to standards. So the meat they were buying in uh, and pretending was British was often Danish, but not Danish to be sold in Europe. It was Danish to be sold in China, so that the standards that it was sort of made to weren't the same as European standards. Um, and I think all of that is really alarming because you sort of, you buy this stuff thinking there is a process that's gone into this and audits and checks. And it turns out this particular company had got really good at avoiding them. I mean, it's it's amazing. It sounds like a carry on film in, at one point, you know, that when as soon as an auditor turns up, a text message goes around and they keep them busy for 15 minutes, making them a cup of tea. And everyone in the factory is clearing out the other meat know, and putting it amazing. back into the lorries again. I we, mean, I we, just, it's horrifying. We actually talked about when we did Food Week on the show last summer, and we spoke to a guy, uh, Chris Elliott, who's a sort of professor in, in all this stuff. And he, he said one of the big problems is that obviously in a time of a cost of living crisis, the, the pressure, because the cost of producers is going up uh, at the same time as the pressure on consumers looking for a bargain. So suddenly sort of everyone is sort of willing to conspire in this thing. But then it's not great for British farmers either, uh, Matt, because you've got, you know, they're producing things to a higher standard which costs more. Then you've got someone else passing off basically what looks like slightly cheaper British meat, but it's not, it's old rotten stuff they found some abroad. Well, it's very bad for British uh, farmers, but I mean, this isn't um, you know a recent cost of living issue. This has been going on for twenty odd years, and yeah. and um, once we find out, I guess who the processor is, uh, there's going to be strong um, well, a lot of calls for uh, criminal sanctions to be placed against them. This is you know very clear. Um, 
fraud. And yeah. um, I think that, and, and it, we, we talk about, you know, coming out of the European Union um, and uh, getting, you know, deregulating a lot of the, you know, red tape. Um, I think one of the things the government is looking looking at is now Kemi Badenoch's job is uh, is basically, the, you know, getting control back over food labelling and uh, and they want to make it much more simpler, simpler and um, cut costs for, for companies. Um, but this is going to really kind of focus the attention on making sure that uh, whatever labelling is on the product, you can, yeah, strip back the the, the details, but as long as you've got to make sure what you're saying is on the label is correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the enforcement here is is is, is terrible. As as we just discussed, you know the, the, the fact that um, they they've, they can give 15 minutes notice. I mean, even 15 minutes is enough time to go and hide all your rotten meat. All your rotten meat. It might be a smell issue. You might have to make sure it's a very sealed cupboard. Uh, but I remember last time we were trying to get to the bottom of this. We couldn't even get numbers for how many cases of food fraud there were. It just wasn't didn't seem to be so many. Um, it was particularly on the radar. Well, while we've been talking in the House of Commons, uh, there, there's DEFRA questions. So Tweez Coffee's been up. And the uh, Sir Robert Goodwin, who chairs the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee, says he was appalled to read this story. And he's asked if the food standards agencies should be brought back within uh, DEFRA rather than being part of uh, health and social care. And uh, Tweez Coffee says it's an interesting idea and she's going to take it to the Prime Minister. Uh, but um, ministers also say they're not going to comment on the what is an ongoing criminal investigation. Uh, because they don't want to jeopardise it, but they're sort of keeping across it. So I suspect there will be more uh, more to, to follow on that. Right, let's uh, turn our attention then to how we're going to save the planet. Uh, I'll ask you both in a minute if you've got a heat pump. Uh, Energy Secretary Grant Shapps was on breakfast this morning and Stig asked him if he'd got one. One of the things that I'm looking at, and I've got a survey, is whether a heat pump could come into our home. Uh, now, heat pumps replace gas heating, uh, there are issues that are not appropriate everywhere to do with the width of your pipes and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, we're extending a program which provides £5,000 per home when you switch to a heat pump. And we're starting to see heat pumps now come down in price, so it makes it competitive with a gas boiler. So he's uh, he's having someone round to have a look at it to see if he's got... Have you got one, Matt? I don't know what even what it is, to be honest. <laughs> Haven't you read all the excellent no, explainers of the Times? <laughs> no, I, yeah. I, I haven't. And I, I actually did look into it, and it was going to cost about 10 grand, and they're only giving us five grand or something, aren't they? So yeah. no way I can afford that. Yeah. What about you, Mammy? No, I'm afraid I haven't. Um, like much of the country. I mean, they've got this sort of, they've got this insane target every year where they're supposed to have 600,000 new heat pumps being, um, you know, being installed. and It's just not happening. Instead, they've got more than a million gas boilers going in. So people aren't switching, and I'm sadly one of them. But I think that's partly because it doesn't suit every home. So I, I feel like I don't know enough about it. I, I worry that they're not going to be hot enough. But there have been, you know, one of the leading producers of heat pumps actually came out and said they might not work for old buildings. So, well, you know, Victorian homes, for example, apparently they might not be brilliantly good at warming up and it all comes down to how much insulation you have and whether you're a detached property which I'm not I, I, I fear so I, I can't even figure out if the, if I'd be a good customer yeah, for yeah. a heat pump well one of the things I think it does it sort of it just maintains the same temperature in your house the whole time so it's always whirring there was a report out I think earlier this week or last week where, where they someone had looked at this and part of the problem was that people always wanted to turn it on and off because that's what you do with your heating. You have your heating on and then you have your heating off and you don't want it on when you're out. But the whole point, it only works if it's running all the time. And I think there was a thing in a report where they'd added a red button that said something like heating boost that you had in the house, which actually didn't do anything. It just ran a fan and people thought, well, that's good. I've boosted the heating there. 
Um, so I don't really, I think in, it, it, there's clearly a big, you know, we've got a lot of old houses in this country. There's also a big psychological thing in Britain about you having the heating on and then you having it off. And you, the idea of having your house constantly at, I don't know, 18 degrees just seems completely opposite to, you know, we're going out to work, so we'll turn the heating off and then we'll have it come on when you come home from work. Yeah, but it's going to be a cultural shift, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what I found interesting from Grant Shapps' um, comments, uh, I think, to journalists uh, yesterday was um, saying that you know, the reason why he hasn't got one, um, he, he, well, he didn't say why he hasn't got one, he's, he's going to have a survey, but he said he's um, experimented when he was transport secretary, he drove an electric vehicle and gave him insight um, uh, and, and he got solar panels um, and he's going to you know, try out a heat pump um, to see how difficult it is. So it's nice that ministers are going to, they don't know how difficult it is uh, yet, but they're, going, they're trying to get us all to get one anyway. <laughs> Somebody's just texted in saying, there's a presentation in our village hall extolling the virtues of heat pumps. I looked into it, but I couldn't face clearing the loft out of 30 years of detritus to, detritus to fit the additional insulation required to be eligible for the state support. However, my neighbour neighbor I get on well with went ahead. The noise from the unit is unbearable in the summit, summer, tucked out of the way so as not to intrude into my neighbour's house, but has blighted my back garden. Sounds like a ringing endorsement there. <laughs> I, I think culturally it's interesting, though, because, um, you know, uh, this isn't something I've I've experienced, sadly, but, you know, you, people in, in the country have Argus, for example, they are used to keeping them on all the time to heat the house. Yeah. So, you know, that it's not it's not impossible, but I think it's just the idea that in some of the older buildings without the right insulation, it just means that it would always be the same temperature and that temperature wouldn't be as warm as you want it to be. Yeah, it'll, ne you, it'll you know, never you be... You can't boost that. Sometimes it'll be hot, hotter than you want it and then other times it'll never be quite as hot as you want it. And also, yeah. I, I remember, vaguely remember the government sort of ran a scheme about they would... Somebody was offering a thing where they'd come and help clear your loft because that was one of the big frictions for people not wanting insulation. That would that would almost make it worthwhile. There, there would some there would be some sort of it was like part of the deal that they would help clear your loft because people were like I couldn't be bothered. Yeah, and I suppose that goes back to when you're joining up policy. You need to you know the frictions that put people off. Well, I think the, the much more important thing is uh, the extension of the um, insulating homes. Um, uh, subsidy that they're, they're yeah, they, they, but they need to roll that out much wider and, and be much more oh, generous. Good, I think. good insulation pun. Yeah. You need to roll it out exactly. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? All that. Have you done that? All the fiberglass, fiberglass that gets in your skin. No. Have you ever done any manual work, Matt? No. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, in the interest of gender equality, have you, have you ever rolled out fiberglass insulation and got it I, in your skin? I can't say I have. No, there we are. Um, I know. I, there's still time, though. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can pick some of that in before the end of the day. Next time you're in the studio, we'll get you a roll. No, it's horrible. <laughs> it's like it's, it, it, it like hooks in your skin. And the thing you don't want to do is have a hot shower because then all your pores open and then it gets even more stuck in you and you'll be itching for weeks. Uh, you're just showing off now. Matt, with your when did you do this? That's <laughs> uh, a good question. It was our current house or our, maybe the previous one. Yeah. Yeah, we can roll out insulation. Well, well, well done. It sounds like you're you're perfectly primed for a heat pump. I know Grant Chats will be on the phone. He wants me to <laughs> sign up for some scheme, get myself a van, come round my house and do it if you want. Yeah, there we are. Good. Right. Never mind insulating your loft. Let's talk about another one of life's great irritations: car parking apps. <laughs> the chair of the Leveling Up Committee, uh, the Labour MP Clive Betts, has written to transport ministers asking for a date when the national parking platform will be rolled out across the country. It's part of a range of parking issues being discussed in the Commons yesterday, and they want something done about parking apps. Now, 
Uh, regular listeners to the show will know that somebody that we know very well has some very strong views on parking apps. Uh, and it is Times Radio's Jane Garvey who joins us now. Morning, Jane. Hello, hello, Matt. I was really quite... You, you called me ardent a couple of minutes ago. It's very disturbing to hear that kind You're of adjective ardent. applied well, to you could me. be ardent for the purposes of the next item. That would be... <sighs> All right. Yes, I will be. That would yes, be great. I'll, I'll... So, so when yeah. you came on, when you first joined Times Radio, you came on and did yeah. If I Ruled the World, and your thing yes. that you'd change was to have a single parking app. Yes, um, and I do genuinely feel that this, um, it really can be an experience that jangles the nerves of almost all of us, but particularly people who aren't that tech savvy or are just having a bad day, or as you said earlier, the battery's low, or they haven't got an internet connection. And um, it, it just, it really frazzles you in that moment of high tension when you're just trying to pay to park. And I know that we shouldn't have cars, we probably shouldn't really drive anywhere, we probably really shouldn't go out. Uh, but those of us who occasionally <laughs> like to do it, um, it's its just, this is just crazy. And I, I'm not quite sure who's making all the money from these apps. I'm sure somebody is. It's just not me. Um, are the councils getting a load of money from it? Or are these apps all owned by startups or huge conglomerates who are absolutely coining it? Well, but I, yeah, good pun. Um, I, from my experience, I've definitely seen it where it would be like a pound to park if you put some money in a machine, but it might be £1.10 if you do it on the app. And I assume that the the parking app people are getting a cut, but then the rest of yeah. it goes to the council. Um, right. And then the councils presumably make a lot of money from fining people who can't use the app and or, you know, if, it, if it's a cash-free parking area, they're going to clobber a load of people for parking fines if they can't use the app properly, aren't they? So it kind of probably helps the councils too. Yeah. What do you think about this, Matt? Do you Probably. love parking apps? I do actually. I've got. I've, I've only got three. Have you? Uh, yeah, and I think they mo- cover most car parks. Um, but I do have sympathy. Apparently, with, there were uh, twenty. The committee, 20. the transport committee, the levelling up committee, have found twenty. It, it is very frustrating though when you get your when you park and you get your phone out and there's no internet. I do have sympathy for um, elderly people and uh, possibly disabled people who it's more difficult. Um, but uh, why not just? Uh, again, roll out the blue badge and just say it's free parking for uh, if you're over 70. The problem is with people like my dad who don't, don't have a mobile phone and aren't that old, so uh, they'll just have to get fined. <laughs> I really well, that's, not gonna... not that's your inheritance yeah, going, Matt. He can't listen, he hasn't got a radio. He hasn't got a radio? He's got one of those old radios, just not on, a, not on the app. Do He's people like... listen to, to, to Times Radio on the radio? The, the old radios? Yeah, on a DAB oh. radio. Not on an old radio. No, How old is no. it, your dad's radio? <laughs> like an enormous like wooden cabinet in the lounge with big knobs on. Uh, Manveen, how many parking apps have you got? Uh, none, but that's only because I don't I don't drive. I'm oh, well, you're allowed to. Uh, that would be peculiar I, if you went around collecting parking It would be peculiar. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I ought to now just to fit in. Um, no, I, I cheat. I, I, get, I get Uber. Well, that's well, that again. That's, but that's another app thing, isn't it? People, you know, that's that di- digital exclusion. So, yeah, Clive Betts and the committee said finding suitable, affordable, and accessible places to park is an important part of our transport infrastructure and considerable value to people as they visit villages, towns, and cities. Recently, there've been accounts of motorists being effect digitally excluded as local authorities phase out pay-as-you-go parking meters due to three G networks being switched off by mobile op- mobile operators. Which that's another thing which is going to probably affect your dad. But he's only got a three G phone. He hasn't got a phone. He hasn't got a mobile phone. But the problem is, if you have one app, you're just going to monopolize uh, the, the apps. Surely, cap, you know, capitalism is about well, the free true. market. But well, but Clive Bet says you shouldn't be left to wrestle with countless apps. There he, we are. He's quite Somebody's just texting and saying parking app. Surely, is the definition of first world problems. Well, 
I mean, in as much as I don't know how many parking apps they're using in the outback of Chad. But, yeah, but loads of people, poor people have to use parking apps. We're not talking about the cost of lobsters. Um, uh, what would you? What do you think, uh, Jane? Do you think we should have um, a single app? Yes, but I would love to... You could open it up to your listeners. What would we call a nationwide... Oh, that's good. ...Britain-only parking app? What would it be called? Appy Parking. Appy Parking. No, Appy is appalling. I cannot stand puns around something. <laughs> Hang on, you're a parking app name and you're not going to accept puns. No, uh, no. Well, park fun. Park fun. That'll do. Park like park fun. Park. Oh, very good. Fun park. Yeah, theme yeah, park. Fun yeah. park. <laughs> the listeners can do better, I'm sure. Manveen Ryan with Matt Dathan. Of course, you can read Matt in the Times. You can catch Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast. Uh, just download that wherever you get your podcast from. Right up next is Vats Life. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now on Times Radio, it's time for That's Life. My first proposals concern the VAT regime. I therefore propose to cut VAT from 175 to 15%. The main rate of VAT will rise from 17.5% to 20%. So I've decided for the next six months to cut VAT on food, accommodation and attractions. We have decided to introduce VAT-free shopping for overseas visitors. We will no longer be proceeding with the new VAT-free shopping scheme for non-UK visitors. Yes, 50 years ago this week, the value-added tax, or VAT, was introduced for the first time in the UK. And it's been on quite the roller coaster up and down since then. From there we heard Norman Amont, Alistair Darling, George Osborne, Rishi Sunak, Kwasi Kwarteng and Jeremy Hutz. Of course, it's, it's the tax you have to pay when you buy goods or services. But 
There are lots of different rates and endless campaigns to make this special case uh, VAT free. This special case, that special case, VAT free. No wonder it's the tax that chancellors have found so taxing. Before VAT, there was the purchase tax, a tax on luxury goods introduced during World War II to stop people wasting resources. Basically, you paid more tax if the government thought what you were buying was a luxury. Then, in the budget of March 1971, the Chancellor, Anthony Barber, announced he was replacing it with a new value-added tax, in part because Britain was set to join the European Economic Community. This was the moment in the Commons uh, which we've recreated for you. In our election manifesto, we said this. We will abolish the selective employment tax as part of a wider reform of indirect taxation, possibly involving the replacement of purchase tax by a value-added tax. For reasons which I shall explain shortly, I have decided that, as from April 1973, both SET and purchase tax will be abolished. And a value-added tax will become operative. This will involve the most fundamental change in our scheme of indirect taxation since purchase tax was introduced just over 30 years ago. Producer Andrew there, adding Anthony Barber to his collection of obscure political impressions. Uh, last week he was doing John Perfumer for us. So that was the moment uh, that uh, uh, the budget in March 1971 announced the introduction of VAT, which came into effect April the 1st, 1973. So what is it? How does it work? And why do chances always fiddle with it? Let's speak to uh, Professor Rita de la Feria. Uh, she's a ch chair in tax law at the University of Leeds and a leading expert on VAT. Morning, Rita. Hello, good morning. So, what is VAT, value-added tax? Explain for people who don't know, explain it for us. So, generally speaking, it's a tax on all consumption. So, in principle, every time that you consume anything at all, uh, you should be paying the, this tax. Um, it has a specific way of functioning. Uh, it's collected on different stages, but ultimately, it's supposed to be borne by the final consumer. Now, is it fair to say that therefore you're, you're sort of being taxed twice? You're taxed when you earn the money and you're taxed again when you spend it? <laughs> um, yes, you could make that argument. Um, loads of countries do that around the world. Uh, so in essence, the majority of countries have some form of income tax and then they have consumption taxes. Uh, if you don't consume at all, uh, of course, you don't pay that tax. Uh, if you don't uh, earn income, you don't pay that tax. So tax is triggered by specific actions that you may or may not undertake. And what does it mean for the, what impact does VAT have on the economy in terms of cutting it, raising it? We heard uh, Alistair Darling cut it after the financial crash in, uh, in 2008. It was 17 and a half, went down to 15, it's now up to 20. What, what impact, what economic impact does that have? So broadly speaking, the tax is supposed to be borne by the consumer. And in essence, that means that it affects the decisions that consumers may make because you may purchase something or not purchase something depending on the price. So if the price is too high, you might abstain from consuming it. Uh, and in which case you might want to decrease the VAT in order to make that action 
um, less likely. So to make people buy something, or you might want to increase it to make it more likely that people won't buy it. So, so in essence, because it's a consumption tax, it's sometimes used to affect the decisions of what consumers buy and what they don't buy. What we know, however, is that this often has very limited impact on actual prices. So we have tried all of these experiments of lowering the VAT on specific products uh, and increasing the VAT. And what we see in essence is that if you cut the VAT, on specific products, what tends to happen is that that gain is absorbed by um, the companies that sell those products, often by retailers, but possibly sometimes by the manufacturers, et cetera. In any event, the price often doesn't come down. So a lot of these actions that you see actually don't have an impact on the consumer because the consumer doesn't even see the doesn't benefit see the of the decrease. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I will speak to some people because it is one of those areas where people launching campaigns, there's sort of two two things they ask for. Either put it on the national curriculum or make it VAT-free. And we're going to hear from some of those campaigns and say, <laughs> I want to talk to you about um, Jaffa Cakes, probably the most famous VAT uh, story, apart from possibly pasties, which we'll talk in a moment. Explain the Jaffa Cakes VAT row. So the Jaffa Cakes, in essence, it's not just famous in the UK, it's in one of the UK exports, so it has become famous all over the world. Uh, in essence, the discussion whether it, whether that specific product was a cookie, uh, or sorry, a biscuit or a cake. And this is because in 1972, when the VAT was approved, cakes were subject to a reduced rate of VAT, but biscuits were not. And this is because biscuits were regarded as a luxury and cakes were not regarded as a luxury. This was a 1972 assessment, of course, but then you fast forward many years and in the 1990s, we have whether Jaffa Cakes was, was a biscuit or a cake. Uh, the, it became famous because ultimately the decision was whether what happened to Jaffa Cake when it became stale. And if it goes hard, uh, it's a cake. And if it comes soggy, it's a biscuit. And it turns out that Jaffa Cake is actually a cake for the purposes of that criterion. So it has become famous all over the world to explain how we these distinctions that the VAT system makes. It's a good test that to try and work out if something is a cake or a biscuit. <laughs> um, and what about there's something similar going on with marshmallows? Yeah, so there is the Jaffa cakes is famous, but the truth is that the courts are full of cases like this, absolutely full. There's famous cases about Pringles, for example, as well, whether they are potato crisps or not potato crisps. Marshmallows is the latest installment of one of these famous cases. And it happened just at the end of last year. Uh, the court was essentially asked whether marshmallows were confessionary and therefore they should be subject to a standard rate of VAT or they were a product for cooking. Why? Because the marshmallows in question were big marshmallows and they were used primarily for roasting. So the, com the company successfully argued that they are actually a cooking uh, product and therefore they should not be treated as confessionary and they should be subject to a lower rate of VAT. Because if you've got a great big marshmallow, you're likely to put it on the end of a stick and cook it over a fire Correct. rather than Correct. eating a bag of them on their own. Um, and so who, who doesn't love s'mores? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I I have got a sweet tooth. I think s'mores are a bit much. This is when you melt marshmallows and put them between two chocolate biscuits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's a bit sweet for me. Is the problem then that um, 
ministers, politicians, because they chop and change and they try to make value judgments based on, and it's a bit like the luxury tax, uh, luxury goods mm. tax that preceded VAT. Once you start getting into, well, is that an essential or is that a luxury? Is that a cake or is that a biscuit? Then you've got, you know, you've got a nightmare on your hands. And it, I suppose the broader question is, it's just better if taxes are kept simple. Yes, Primarily VAT, because VAT is, in essence, not a good instrument to achieve social and distributional uh, aims. So it's not good to uh, to actually um, play um, with the VAT system in order to affect the decisions of consumers. We have now better ways uh, within the tax system and within the expenditure side to actually influence people's decisions uh, and to make, um, uh, to protect the poorest, for example, et cetera. So, so VAT is not a good instrument. The problem is that it's very tempting because it feels like it's a simple measure and that will give you immediate returns. Uh, so the temptation for politicians uh, pressured by lobby groups is to interfere with the VAT system, but it really isn't a very effective way. Uh, it's very costly. Um, the, v the VAT lost to the UK uh, on this type of, of reduced rates is enormous. So we lose almost half of the tax base for VAT by giving these type of concessions and the benefits are at best dubious. That's really interesting, that. And I suppose it goes back to that, to that thing about people think, well, if we want to show, oh, we like that thing, that's a good thing, that's a thing we should be supporting. You you think, well, well, make it VAT-free, but then it, it costs, that's amazing, that half of the amount of money that we could be getting from VAT, we don't because of those special uh, dispensations we made. Well, let, in fact, let's hear from some of them. So what we've got, we've got some, we can hear from some people who've campaigned for various things. Uh, here's a campaign to ze uh, for zero rating VAT on uh, green energy technology. This is Libby Peak from the Green Alliance. VAT is the UK's tax on consumption. But at the moment, there are several ways in which it is driving perverse purchasing habits, discouraging activities that will lead to more secure jobs and a greener, healthier society, while encouraging activities that damage our environment make us unhealthy and hold back the economy. And nowhere is this more true than in the construction industry, where new build benefits from zero VAT, while retrofitting activities, those that preserve or improve buildings, are often charged full VAT at 20%. This makes no sense. In some instances, it encourages environmentally damaging demolition and new build over a retrofit first approach. And it also makes it harder for people to improve their homes with energy efficiency measures or improved heating systems. Energy-saving products, such as insulation and heat pumps, were given a VAT holiday in the 2022 spring budget. This should be made permanent and expanded to other retrofitting activities that preserve or improve the environmental performance of a building to encourage that retrofit-first approach. And the best news is that this will also bring economic benefits. It's been estimated that even if the VAT on housing renovation and repair were to drop to 5% in the UK, it would provide an economic stimulus of over £15 billion over five years and create, create nearly 100,000 extra jobs in construction and the wider economy at relatively little cost to the Treasury. It really is a no-brainer. It's always a no-brainer, Rita. Um, uh, that was, <laughs> that's Libby Peake there from the Green Alliance. Yeah, if we cut the VAT on this thing, it'll lead to jobs and growth and it'll all be... It'll all be great. And I suppose your point is, if you keep you can make the case for almost everything, honey. That's correct, and people do. <laughs> uh, so the issue is that there is uh, um, um, 
big range of lobby groups operating in this area and trying to get a concession for this for specific products. Uh, and we already have a very um, a narrow base for VAT uh, in the UK as just set out. So, so this is very problematic. Uh, I think that the key issue, it goes back to something you just said, Matt, which is the people like something. So they use VAT to achieve that something. Yeah. So the problem is this kind of confusion between the policy aim and the instrument. Uh, um, so I, the environmental uh, aims are uh, meritorious. So they, 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 it's something that it's worth pursuing. The question, though, is not whether we like that aim or not. The question is whether VAT is the best instrument yeah, yeah. to achieve that aim. And often we make that confusion. We did that with the tampon tax as well. So gender equality is a meritorious aim. The issue is whether you know the VAT decrease is the way to achieve that aim. It's funny you, you should mention the uh, the tampon tax. Uh, so the the uh, let's hear we're going to hear from Laura Corriton now. Uh, she took on the government over VAT and won. She was the head of the Stop Taxing Periods campaign, arguing that tampons and sanitary towels should be VAT exempt. And uh, yeah, she scored a victory, and it it happened. My name is Laura, and in 2014, I started a petition against tampon tax, which was the luxury tax rate applied to all period products. This campaign took seven years to be successful, and over that time, we spoke with a lot of journalists, and we did some protests, we did stunts around different schools and universities, and worked with lots of different campaigners across the country. And eventually, we gained over 300,000 signatures, which pressured Parliament into speaking about periods and about tampon tax as well well as other issues like period poverty. That led eventually to tampon tax being scrapped in January 2021, which was a huge moment, something I never thought would happen. It was, yeah, really exciting because it was the end of a symptom of sexism, which so many people have been paying into um, without even realising it a lot of the time. We've actually started a new petition, if anyone wants to sign it. And this new petition has been created off the back of some research that's come out that showed that retailers of period products, they haven't reduced the price of period products yet in line with tampon tax ending which is extremely frustrating so we have yet to have the financial benefit from the tax being scrapped the website is uh, change.org forward slash drop tampon tax and so yeah since then i've um, launched a social enterprise called sex ed matters and we try and tackle issues like period poverty uh, in school as well as lots of other areas of the sex ed curriculum like unhealthy understandings of consent and sexuality and bullying and all these kind of issues too uh rita law's uh story there is exactly what you were saying that you reduce you get the, the reduced rate and then it doesn't get passed on to consumers anyway yeah, that's correct. I mean, there was a study by the tax policy uh, associates um, that basically looked at the prices and uh, con concluded that there was no price reduction. So uh, Laura there said that there was no benefit seen. There was a benefit, just not for consumers. <laughs> the benefit went to the companies that either sell or, or produce these tampons. And that's basically what happens often when we give these concessions. We are benefiting these companies. What I find most paradoxical is that uh, there is a, a um, uh, a campaign because these certain companies are doing too many profits, etc. Yeah, and we yeah. want to tax them. Some of these profits are because we gave them these we tax gave concessions. Them a exactly. <laughs> uh, Rita, you've been brilliant. Thank you so much for talking us through uh, the history of VAT. Professor Rita de la Feria uh, from the University of Leeds, an expert in uh, VAT. Uh, Rita, thanks for joining us on Times Radio. So we can't talk about VAT and not talk about 
the pasty tax. Back in 2012, uh, we all became real experts in VAT. The Omni Shambles budget of 2012 it included changes on caravans. Granny tax was in there, but the pasty tax was the one that dominated everything. In it, George Osborne announced the standard 20% VAT rate will be charged on all hot takeaway food. This is him announcing it. To address some of the loopholes and anomalies in our VAT system, for example, at present, soft drinks and sports drinks are charged VAT. Sports nutrition drinks are not. Hot takeaway food on the high streets has been charged VAT for more than 20 years, but some new hot takeaway products in supermarkets are not. Yeah, well, it took about an hour after that finished. I really remember going to the Treasury briefing where everyone suddenly became very cross about passes and they couldn't really explain what they were doing. It Well, Labour took full advantage of the disarray. This is Ed Balls telling me how he visited a Greg's with Ed Miliband and Rachel Reeves. Everybody was up for it. So we go in with this TV camera, me and Ed and uh, Rachel Reeves, and I'd say... Hi there. Can we get... Um, eight sausage Look, anybody who's ever bought a sausage roll from Greg's while on the motorway knows you've got kids in the back. They need a separate bag or else the crumbs go everywhere. So I think it showed an inside knowledge of sausage roll ordering... But people were a bit taken aback because Ed Miliband, who I'm not sure if he's ordered that many great sausage rolls, and said, why do you want eight? I became you know, the, 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 the mass sausage roll consumer. Rachel Reeves' jaw dropped. I'm not totally sure if our photo call worked that well. That was Ed Balls talking about being Shadow Chancellor in a Greg's. Uh, well, this is George Osborne talking about why everything went wrong. You know, one of the budgets that went wrong for me Quite a few went right, but one or two went wrong, was the 2012 budget with the pasty tax. And one of the reasons why that became such a thing was because all the good news had been announced beforehand, had leaked out beforehand over the weekend. And I only, you know, so the meat had gone and I was left with the uh, gristle. Well, I knew that I had a problem when I turned up and Marie Antoinette was standing outside the Treasury handing out pasties. <laughs> Let them eat pasties. George Osborne also admitted he couldn't remember the last time he'd had a pasty. Well, one man who was at the centre of the pasty tax round was Ken McMichael. He was the boss of Greg's at the time. He's now chief executive of Moto Hospitality, running service stations across the country. And Ken joins us now. Hi, Ken. Hi, Matt. Did you ever get? Did you ever get George Osborne in a Greg's? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> not not personally accompanying me. Um, we did, however, spend a huge amount of time once they'd made the announcement that they wanted to apply 20% VAT to bakery products. Um, we did spend a lot of time with MPs. I spent a lot of time with David Gork, who was the secretary at the Exchequer at the time. Yeah, uh, We managed to get a, a huge amount of cross-party support from MPs because... The announcement caused outrage among consumers across the whole of the UK and outrage from the baker industry who were caught completely by surprise and hadn't been consulted before this was announced. It just came literally out of the blue. And the campaign worked. And I suppose it's a reminder to uh, politicians. Cause I, I remember the, 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 the Treasury at the time was saying, well, it's only just tidying things up. It's not huge amounts of money. Uh, and in, to which the response ended up being, well, why bother then? If you're going to go through this political grief of uh, putting up the price of a pasty, uh, it's got to be worth it if you're raising billions and billions of pounds. And it wasn't. It was, I think, from memories, a sort of a few million. And I suppose it's a reminder that, that people like their pasties more than they like their politicians. Well, I think they definitely like their 
pasties more than they like the politicians, um, particularly when they make decisions like this one, which would have affected basically you know, the man and woman on the street because the bakery industry would have had no choice if this tax had gone through, but to put up prices to reflect the increase in VAT. So, you know, we, we said about really trying to highlight why the uh, VAT was going to be wrongly applied mm. to the bakery industry. As it happens, there, there were loopholes. For example, in supermarkets, they were um, selling hot chickens, which were advertised as oh, hot. Yes. They were kept in a heated counter. And very clearly, they should have been paying the yeah, 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 it was rotisserie chickens versus pasties. I remember all that. Now, Ken, right. I, need, I need to ask because you're now. I mentioned now I'm running Moto Hospitality, and there's a there's a new there's a new there's a new VAT battle that you want to join. Yeah, look, there's um, you know a, a huge transition happening. It's a once in a hundred years change in mode of transport where people are increasingly going to move from a diesel and an unleaded car into an electric vehicle. Now, at the moment, there's the VAT. If you go to a charger um, away from home, you'll pay for um, that charge, the same electricity that you would get at home. You will have to pay, in effect, 20% VAT, as opposed to if you're charging an EV car at home, it would be 5% VAT. And we just don't see the sense in charging people more to charge away from home for electricity. That 20% VAT, we should be encouraging people to make that switch into electric vehicles. And as, as always, it's very difficult to get the government to understand the issue and then to act on it. But and, we think there is a discrepancy at the moment between and, charging at home and charging away from home. And do you think, because there's a lot of talk about going green and net zero and everything today, um, that, as far as I'm aware, that doesn't form part of their plans. Can the government achieve its its aims, do you think, without addressing this discrepancy? No, I think continually what's going to happen, if the government don't incentivise people to make the switch, then the transition will take longer. And the the challenge continually is that the government have got a, uh, a massive shortfall to make up. And what they'll continually do is look for ways to very simply apply tax to uh, bring in uh, revenue. And the, the other challenge, I think, that the government have is they they bring in income, you know, is significant from fuel duty at sort of, 52.95p um, yeah. of what you pay for a, a litre of fuel, that's fuel duty. And on top of that, you get another 20% VAT. As people switch out of diesel and unleaded cars into electric cars, I think what the government are also wrestling with is where are they going to make up that fuel duty that they currently get yeah, from yeah. diesel and unleaded it's a really interesting, it's an interesting thing to end end a conversation about fifty years of VAT with a new campaign to uh, to reduce VAT on a specific thing. Ken, really good to speak to you, uh, Ken McKaykin there uh, from uh, the chief executive of Moto Hospitality and was the head of Greg's at the height of the Omni Shambles budget. 
That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.